How are we doing? Did you guys have a good day today? Woo! I had a great day, an amazing day. Where are the Manteca boys at? Yeah! All righty. Modesto? Oh, Modesto is a great. Hey, question for you. Who's this crew over here in the upper left corner of the balcony? Have you, have you been in that upper left corner the entire time? No. Okay, so just for a night. Just trying to be as reclusive as possible for, okay. Um, all righty. What, Griffin, Gryffindor? What? Clovis. Got it. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Hey, where's Kingsburg at? Okay, there you go. Um, I don't know how this started. What? Reedley? Yeah. Central Valley. Um, uh, this is going to turn into a riot. Okay. Uh, hey, can I... Uh, Wait, what? No. Uh, just joking. Okay, let me, uh, if I'm praying and you interrupt me and God, then, uh, not, not, then you're in trouble. So let me pray and we'll get started, okay? All right. Lord, we're thankful for everybody gathered here. We're thankful for the worship that we heard. God, we're thankful just for the joy uh, that comes from camp, a fun day. God, we pray that as we look to the living word of God, would you help, it, would you help us to view it as such, the word of God? And Lord, I pray that you would do a great work tonight through your spirit and through um, and in each other. We love you, God, and we pray this in your name. And all God's people said, yeah. amen. All right. Let me recap. Okay, Jonah 2. At the end of the chapter, Jonah's praying in the belly of a fish. And it says that after he declares a certain reality, I just need to figure out a spot for this water bottle. After he declares a certain reality, it says that the fish, 2.11 or 2.10, it says, then the Lord commanded the fish and it what? Vomited. Anybody have a different word there? Hurled, spit. The literal idea there is that the fish goes, and Jonah is on dry land at the end of chapter 2. Now, it's going to be no surprise for us that the beginning of chapter 3 is going to be very reminiscent of the exact words that Jesus used or God used in chapter 1. And it's because God is a God of second chances. And so he's going to take Jonah again. He's going to set him up on dry land. And he's going to recommission him for a great purpose. Let me read the passage. It says in chapter 3, Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, the great city, and proclaim to it the proclamation which I am going to tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, a three days walk. Then Jonah began to go throughout the city one day's walk, and he cried out and said, Yet forty days Nineveh will be overthrown. Then the people of Nineveh believed in God, and they called a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest to the least of them. When the word reached the king of Nineveh, he arose from his throne, laid aside his robe from him, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat on the ashes. He issued a proclamation, and it said, In Nineveh, by the decree of the king and his nobles, do not let man, beast, 
herd or flock taste a thing. Do not let them eat or drink water, but both man and beast must be covered with sackcloth and let men call on God earnestly that each may turn from his wicked way and from the violence which is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent and withdraw his burning anger so that we will not perish. And when God saw their deeds, that they turned from their wicked way, then God relented concerning the calamity which he had declared he would bring upon them, and he did not do it. It's a great story. Now, why is God so concerned? We talked about this last night. It feels like we've been here for a while, but last night, Nineveh was an exceedingly great city. It's one of the largest cities in the ancient world. We think there's around a million people there, and God has a great concern for them. Now, I want you to think with me, if you've ever heard of a revival or been to a revival or seen a movie where there's a revival, I want you to think about the necessary things that go into a revival meeting. Maybe you think of like Dodger Stadium, Billy Graham, Phil Wickham's there, some people like spinning signs that say like, come on in, Tim Tebow's there holding up a thumbs up or something like that. And you welcome everybody. There's a huge crowd, lots of lanyards, everyone got signs, they're passing out candy. And then there's a great meeting and maybe people come to know God. But the passage that we're looking at tonight is the greatest revival in the history of the world because it says that the entire city is going to turn towards God. This third chapter of Jonah contains not only the high point of evangelical history in regards to an event, but it's the high point of the book of Jonah because what we've covered so far is the remarkable part about Jonah is not the great fish, it's the great God that is eager to save lost sinners. The whale spitting Jonah up on dry land is the preface, it's the introduction, it's the opening chapter to what Jonah is really all about. The curtains are drawn and now the drama is about to unfold. The power and purpose of God is about to be revealed. Now the question is, why, why was God so intent on declaring judgment on Nineveh? Well, it says in chapter one, if you flip, flip back, it says, for their wickedness has come up before me. I told you last night that the sin of Nineveh was coming up to God. It's as if all of Nineveh was crying out saying, here's the sin, God, over here, over here, what you hate. Look down here, what is an abomination to you, God? What you despise? What is a contradiction to your holiness? Right here, God, waving their arms at God. It was obvious, it was a stench in the nose of a holy God. But as we just read, within moments of the message, the entire city would be broken over their sin before a holy God. I wanna be really simple with you tonight. I'm gonna tell you the message of Jonah, chapter three. I'm gonna tell you the message of the gospel. And then after that, I'm gonna urge you if you have not yet received Christ, to receive him. I don't do gimmicks. Um, I just want you to know exactly what's coming. I wanna tell you what chapter three is about. I wanna tell you what the entire Bible's about. And then I'm gonna urge you and plead with you to be reconciled to God if you're not. Deal? Okay, chapter three. It's a short message, it's the, sh the, the shortest sermon probably in the Old Testament. It's five Hebrew words. And it says 40 days and Nineveh will be overthrown. And I wanna look at it with 
over three parts with you. But first, I want you to consider with me that Jonah was commissioned by God to declare a message from God. He says in chapter three, go and tell them the proclamation which I am going to tell you. In evangelicalism, what people wanna do is they wanna doctor up the word of God for the people of God because they think that maybe God's word is irrelevant, maybe it's not going to really drive home to the people that are listening. But the messenger of God has one mission and it's always to deliver exactly what God has spoken. It's never to soften the message. It's never to harden the message. It's to deliver the message as God himself has ordained. This is the message of every pastor, preacher, and Christian. It's to declare exactly what God has spoken. Jonah was not at liberty to go into the city and say what he wanted to say. He's not at liberty to go into the city and say what he thought the people would want to hear. He is given a divine commission by a holy God to say absolutely nothing except what God had told him to say. And the Holy Spirit is going to use exactly that message to transform an entire city. And I wanna look at that message over three parts with you. Number one, Jonah convinced the people that their sin was great. Their sin was great. He says, 40 days, Nineveh will be overthrown. And the reality is, and they know because later on they say, return and repent of your violence. They knew that their sin was great before a holy God. And Jonah had convinced the people of this. And I can say the same thing to you tonight. Your sin is a great offense to a holy God. And every sin you have ever committed is in the eyes of God. It's before the presence of the one who made all things and although it's secret to you, it's not secret to God, Number says be sure that your sin will find you out because God has already found out what you try to keep hidden from the rest of the world. And your sin creates a chasm between you and God. It separates you from God. And you are not just a sinner by practice, you are a sinner by origin, meaning that you were born into this sin. And Ephesians says that you are by nature a child of wrath. And the piercing question for every single person hearing the message that their sin is a great offense to a holy God is can I truly live another moment in the foulness of my own polluted heart? But not only did Jonah convince them that their sin was a great offense before a holy God, he told them that their time was short. Secondly, their time was short. He says 40 days and Nineveh will be overthrown. He doesn't say, hey, you have 39 days to live it up. He says, 40 days and you'll be overthrown. And then the response is immediate. The people don't go, wait a second, so you're telling me on day 40 is when judgment comes. No, they understand that their sin has offended God. And then they go, my time is limited. You might not have 40 days, you might not have four days, you might not have four hours. Your time is limited. And God always, always wants to remind you of the brevity and fleeting nature of your life. You are fragile. And if there's anything that the last two years has taught us is that you are not promised tomorrow. And God always is reminding us through the scriptures, as Jonah does here, you are on borrowed time. And yet you think, I'll turn things around when I'm 30. And the word of God speaks to you and says, you're not promised another moment. They've been pierced by the reality of their sin. They don't make a plan to live it up for another 39 days. They've been pierced with a recognition 
of the transient nature of human life. Your sin is great, Jonah says, first of all. Number two, your time is short. And number three, he says, 40 days and Nineveh will be overthrown. Number three, your judgment is sure. To be overthrown means to be demolished. It means to be absolutely destroyed. There is no ambiguity in the mind of Nineveh in regards to what would happen after the allotted days they, that were to be completed. They were to be judged. And although maybe you've grown up hearing that God doesn't judge sinners, I tell you tonight, that is a damnable lie. I think maybe some people out of this, this care and concern for you have tried to hide the reality that God is a God who judges sin. But the most careless, unloving thing anybody could ever do is to rob you of the third ingredient of Jonah's message. Oh, sinner, your sin is a great offense to God. Your time is short, and your judgment is sure. You will stand before a holy God, and none of you will escape standing before his presence. And that's the message. But I want to look with you at their response in verse 4. Or verse five, it says, then the people of Nineveh believed in God and they called a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. These people were awakened and they were quickened to the seriousness of their spiritual condition. They recognized the pollution in their lives. You know why? Because it's never dependent upon the messenger. It's always a work of God to convict the sinner of their sin. Which is why sometimes even in the back I'm pacing. I'm like, Mimi, is there a fun analogy to hook them? Maybe then they'll draw them in. If they only knew I was also fun and like to have a good time, then when I got serious later on, maybe they would buy it more. Let me just tell you something biblically. There's only power in the message because God is powerful. And that God is using a begrudging, complaining, whiny Jonah to go in there and say 40 days and Nineveh will be overthrown. There's no analogies, no stories, no hook, line, and sinker. He's just saying 40 days, that's the message. This is what God says. And it says they were pierced. Because when God's word is taught God's way, God does awesome things. And it says, man, they believed in God. It doesn't just mean they believed God. It says they believed in God. It means that they are now looking to God going, oh my goodness. I have really offended God. My time is limited. Can I just tell you, I have friends in the last year that have died. It's just insane. My time is limited and my judgment is sure, which means that if tonight you were to take your last breath, I know where you would instantly be before the face of a holy God. And it says they believed in God. And then what's interesting about the rest of the chapter, you know what it is? Is Jonah's name is not mentioned once. Because the goal of a preacher is to point the people to God and withdraw. I'm not trying to link you to me. I want you to hear God speak through his word. And so Jonah is nowhere to be mentioned because that's his place. 
He withdraws. You live in a world where people try to be the man. And here's part of the reason I want to be careful with you to not tell you all these crazy stories and tie it into the Bible because you'll leave Hume Lake going, I just want to hear the way. And maybe, you know, if there's a story and an analogy and your faith begins to rest on the creativity of the communicator. But biblically, your faith rests exactly and precisely on what God is saying here. And Jonah delivers the message and God uses it because God uses his word. And then the humility that marks them, verse six, when the word reached the king of Nineveh, he arose from his throne, he laid aside his robe, he covered himself with sackcloth. Let me just pause here. It says, and sat on ashes. This is a sign of total brokenness. You might say yes and amen to for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Have you ever been broken by your sin? Have you ever had your sin break you? Because God has so convicted you of the offense that it is to him. And they've been humbled before God. And the irony here is Jonah knows every single answer. He's grown up in the church. He's next. He's been trained by two of the godliest prophets in the history of mankind. And yet the instant response of a violent king who actively beheads his enemies is a disrobing and a stooping down in humility because he's broken by his sin. And I just want to look at the rest of the way he speaks. Look at verse nine. This is a question. It says, who knows? God may turn and relent and withdraw his anger so that we would not perish. He's thinking, man, is there a way for God's wrath to be satisfied? How can God's anger towards us be absorbed? Oh, is there any way that the judgment that is coming to us can, can be borne by another? And the king speaks up because he's apparently a wise man. And he says, man, listen, okay, guys, come on, think with me. This message, this warning, this caution would not be given to us if there wasn't some glimmer of hope that we might have. Why would this God come and say 40 days and you'll be overthrown? Maybe, maybe, who knows? Who knows? Maybe there's a way that this God can turn in his anger towards us. Maybe there's hope, just maybe. There's no assumption here that mercy is his birthright. He doesn't say Let's just say sorry, trust me. He goes, oh, who knows? All we can do, it says here in verse eight, earnestly call on God. Let's plead with God to show us mercy. This is not automatic. It's a reminder to us of this, that the repentant person has no case to argue for their own acceptance before God. You don't go, I said I'm sorry, do your thing God. Earnestly plea, it reminds me in Luke 18 of the tax collector who says, oh God, be merciful to me a sinner, please, please. And so the great king bows his heart before God, he repents and turns, and the God of whom Jonah has spoken in verse 10, it says, does turn and does not bring judgment upon them. 
Their repentance is proved in chapter three by works. Salvation is never by works, but it brings about good works because there is no true belief without corresponding action in your life. Faith without works is what? Talk to me. Say it together. Faith without works is what? Dead. Dead. And God turns. Now, here's a little history for you. That's cool. You know, I'm fascinated by the Bible, and so sometimes they give you context that you go, that's unnecessary to me. But I think the Bible is a, a massive symphony because God is an artist, and he's writing one story. Jonah is from Beth Gaffer, which is three miles north of Nazareth. I've been there in the region of Galilee. And he is the only prophet in the entire Old Testament who's from the region of Galilee. 750 years later, the disciples would go to a young man named Nathaniel and say, come meet the Messiah of Nazareth. And he immediately asks a question, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Do you know the answer? The greater Jonah comes from the same town as our Jonah. And sometimes we think that this judgment preaching that Jonah employs is an Old Testament construct. But I want you to know that if Jesus showed up tonight, he would preach the exact same thing as Jonah. He would grab us in love by the collars and say, oh, listen, your sin is an offense to a holy God. Your time is short and your judgment is sure. Repent and believe and turn to me. Don't believe me? Let me just look at a few passages in scripture with you. The Bible promises judgment. And sometimes I want you to know the love of God, but the love of God is only precious when you understand where you would be without it. Here's 2 Corinthians 5. We will all appear in judgment. Hebrews 9. It is appointed once for man to die, and after that comes judgment. Matthew 4. The first words out of Jesus' mouth and his preaching ministry, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at near, because after that, air comes judgment. Mark 1.15, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of, it, of God is at hand. Repent because judgment is coming. Luke 13.3, Luke 13.5, unless you repent, you will likewise perish. Those are all quotes from Jesus Christ. Matthew, turn, I want you to look back here. Matthew chapter 12. In verse 39, Jesus, it says, but he answered them and said, Matthew 12, 39, an evil and adulterous generation craves for a sign and yet no sign will be given to it but the sign of Jonah the prophet. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the sea monster, so will the son of man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will stand up with this generation at the judgment and will condemn it because they repented at the preaching of Jonah and behold, something greater than Jonah is here Jesus says, I've preached the same exact message. I don't know what your idea of Jesus is, but with pleading hands and a heart full of love, he tells us, oh, don't you get it? Don't you get that your sin is not a minor blemish before God? It is a grievous offense. Don't you get it? Your days are numbered. Don't you get your time is short? 
And don't you know that there is one certainty in life? It's death. And don't you know that after that, you will awake in judgment. And Jesus says, please, wake up. This is why Ephesians says, awake, O sleeper. Don't you get it? Jesus pleads with sinners. I don't know what your idea of Jesus would be, but he's not gonna come here and just schmooze us. He is a messenger from God the Father, and the message has always stayed the same. John 3, turn there, I want you to see something. John 3. Sixteen. You know this, right? Yeah, okay. I want you to see something with me. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him shall not what? Okay, so think with me because we're smart. Which implies that if we do not believe in Jesus Christ, we will what? Perish. Okay, let's keep tracking because we have to, we have to think but have eternal life. For God did not send the son into the world to judge the world but that the world might be saved through him. Now listen here. He who believes in him is not judged, but he who does not believe in him has been judged already. Pause. If you're in your sin, God is not waiting to judge you. You understand that? The Bible says you are judged already. You already stand condemned before God. That's just the Bible, right? We're tracking? This isn't like radical Johnny. This is the Bible. This is Jesus. You stand condemned already. And Jesus says the only way to reverse the verdict is for you to believe. This is the judgment, verse 19, that the light has come into the world and men don't receive him. Do you know why people reject Jesus? It's because they love the darkness rather than the light. They love their sin. It would have been like Nineveh saying, if I got 40 days, I'm gonna live it up. And that's why Jesus says they reject him because they're so blinded by their fleeting love for sin. Now look at verse 35. The father loves the son and has given all things into his hand. He who believes in the son has eternal life. If you're a Christian, can you say amen? amen. Watch this. But he who does not obey the son will not see life but the wrath of God abides on him. I always, I, I will, do you get that? Do you get that? The king's question is a question for us tonight. The king asks, who knows? Who can tell if the God of the universe will turn in his anger towards us? Who can tell? And the question for you that you should be asking is, my sin is an offense to God, my time is short, judgment is sure, who can tell, can God have mercy on someone like me? I can tell. Because God, God's word tells us. That question has an answer that has been settled forever. Who can tell? Jesus himself can tell. Because at the cross of Jesus Christ, God settled that, that question once and for all. Because you can be made right with God. Because do you know what Jesus Christ bore on the tree? The judgment of God. 
Have you ever considered the cross that way? What Jesus bore on the cross was the full measure of the judgment and wrath and hatred of sin that God has. Which is when Jesus says, my God, my God, take this cup from me. I don't want to bear this cup. What's the cup? What's the cup Jesus doesn't want to bear? It's the full cup, not just of death. Yes, but there's truth in that. It's the cup of the wrath of God. It's judgment. It's judgment. Your sin and my sin, sin is always paid for. Do you understand that? Sin will be paid forever in hell or at the cross by Jesus Christ. You have two ways where sin is paid for. Forever, for all of eternity, in the belly of hell. Or forever, for all of eternity, in the presence of the God who loved you and gave himself for you because he died on a tree that he planted to bear the judgment that you and I deserve because your sin is an offense to God. You can know for sure that God will forgive you of your sins. You can know for absolute certain because Jesus shed his blood for all those who would come to him in faith. God exercises judgment. Do you understand this? But it gives him no pleasure in doing so. I want you to see the heart of God. It says in Ezekiel 18, Ezekiel 33, God is pleading with sinners in the Old Testament. And he's saying, I take no pleasure in the punishment of the wicked. And then he says, sinner, why would you die? I mean, think about that with God. God's not aloof going, see if I care. Hey, Jonah, if they, if they don't respond, no biggie. At least we try. No, God's not like that. Do you want to know the heart of God? That's the theme of Jonah. The heart of God is God grabs sinners. In Ezekiel 18, he says, oh, sinner, why would you die? Wake up. It's not worth it. It's not worth it. I don't take any pleasure in the punishment of the wicked, but I desire all men to come to repentance. So what brings God great pleasure? The salvation of one sinner. So how can I be saved? Last night we looked at the exhaustion of sin. Maybe I can ask, are you exhausted by sin? I find Matthew 11, Jesus' words to be fitting. Matthew eleven twenty eight. 28. Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your what? Your souls. Jesus gets it. He says, are you exhausted by your sin? Is it causing you to be wearisome? Are you dragged down by the burden of sin? Have you been running from me? He says, come to me. 
all you who are weary and burdened and heavy laden. And do you know what I'll give you? Rest from the exhaustion of running from God. Because I'll grab you in my arms. I'll represent you to God because I've already bore all of the judgment that God will pour out towards your sin. Because if you believe in me, all of your sin was nailed to the cross with me. Do you understand that when people say God loves you and has a wonderful plan for his life, it's so shallow unless you understand that the only way you can measure the love of God is if you understand the judgment that Jesus bore on the cross for you. People wanna keep you from this. This is too intense. No, this is biblical. You cannot begin to fathom the love of God and oh, it's rich. Oh, love of God, how measureless and sure it shall forever be. The saint's song, it's amazing. It's amazing. But you can't begin to understand that unless you understand that Jesus bore your judgment. Have you received this love? Why would you reject his mercy? Why would you reject his love? Is your sin worth it, Jesus asks? Have you ever found a better savior? Matthew 12, one thing, just want, because sometimes we miss this, and we can't miss this, especially from the context of Jonah. Matthew 12, 40, we've looked at it, but I want us to remember for just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the sea monster, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. We worship a risen Savior. Sometimes messages are given and people leave Jesus on the cross. He died for your sin. Every single time I hear that, I go, get to the best part of the Christian faith because you and I are morons unless we include this. Jesus says, just like Jonah, I wanna use an analogy, think with me. We're, we're, he's tracking with us. He's mindful of our frame. He goes, you know how Jonah was three days in the belly of a great fish? I'm gonna be three days in the belly of the earth. And in the same way that the fish vomits up Jonah because that was God's plan, the grave will vomit me up because that was God's plan. And the only way that you can actually have trust and assurance is if you have some sort of credible way of knowing that on the cross, the full measure of God's judgment towards sin was satisfied. Because the question we must be asking is, how do I really know if all of my sin was paid for? I've sinned a lot, Johnny. Well, the way you can know for absolute certain that Jesus bore all of the judgment due to you is because the grave did not keep Jesus down. It vomited Jesus because death cannot hold him. He had power over the grave. We have a living Savior and the resurrection. Are you a skeptic? The resurrection is the most solid, credible evidence of the Christian faith there is. Muhammad, in the grave. Buddha, in the grave. Joseph Smith, in the grave. Jesus, alive and seated at the right hand of God. Question, are you afraid of death? You live in a world that's paranoid by it. 
And Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even if he dies. He who believes in me will never die because I have resurrection power and offer resurrection life to who? To those who confess with their mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in their heart that God has raised him from the dead. Jesus bids you to repent, which means to turn from your sin and to turn to him. And this is a miracle of God. He graciously offers you himself and he graciously warns you of what it means to reject him. Will you trust the Savior tonight? Pastor's kid that's never known him. Visitor that's never heard the message of the gospel. You come to a Jesus Christ who deeply loves you and who declares that and demonstrates it by his nail-pierced hands. Maybe you're thinking, I gotta get my life in order. And let me read this and then we'll be done. It's the hymn, To God Be the Glory. O perfect redemption, the purchase of blood, to every believer the promise of God, the vilest offender who truly believes, that moment from Jesus a pardon receives. Can I pray for you? God, we love you and we're thankful for the message of the gospel. Lord, we pray that tonight you would save those who are still in their sin, that they would come to you because, God, you save us not by works but by the means of faith, by saying, God, I believe in you. I believe in God. And, Lord, there are a number here, presumably hundreds, that do not know you as their Savior. And so, Lord, I pray that you begin to work in their heart even now that they would receive Christ that you would transform their hearts like you did with the Ninevites. I want everyone to keep their eyes closed and heads down. And in a moment, I'm just gonna ask, if you haven't given your life to Christ, and whether you've grown up in the church or you've never been to church, and you recognize your need for a savior, and you wanna signify a surrendering to Jesus Christ tonight, and you recognize that he alone can save you, he is the only way, the only truth, and the only life, and you wanna cry out and say, God, save me. Would you look at me right now? Everyone else, keep your heads down. Would you look at me right now? I wanna talk to you for a moment. The message of the gospel is clear. You're a sinner, but God is a great savior. And if you've never received Christ, and tonight you wanna do so, can I pray for you? Can I pray that you would have a transformed heart by a powerful savior? God, we thank you for those who recognize their need for you, that know they need you. And God, maybe there's even some that are praying right now that are fighting and hesitant to give their life to you. I pray that you would release them of that now. Look, Keep looking at me. I want to talk to you. The decision to follow Christ is the greatest decision brought about by God. It is a life of absolute joy, and you cannot taste joy unless you live near to the God that loves you and who died for you. God, we're thankful for the work of salvation. We pray this in your name and all God's people said, amen. amen. Now, pause with me real quick. Here's, here's what the Christian faith is. The Christian faith...
is a public faith. Meaning that there is no such thing as saying, hey, I keep my faith to myself if you're a Christian. It's something that we confess before others and something that we have confessed before God. So in a moment, I'm gonna ask those of you who have given your life to Christ, I want you to stand in just a moment because here's why. Because if you can st can't stand for God here, it'll be difficult for you to stand for God in a world that hates him. And yet, if you can stand here, you know that you have brothers and sisters in Christ that wanna come alongside you and point you towards Christ, amen? Amen. amen. So if you've given your life to Christ tonight, would you please stand so that we can celebrate what God has done in your life? Say standing, yeah, you can see. Um, um, awesome. You guys all ready? Well, hey, I, I'm so thankful. And here's the thing, if, you, if you've given your life to Christ, would you all stand with me now just as we are about to close in song? If you've given your life to Christ tonight or you have questions, Nothing can be more important than talking to your counselor, your youth pastor, and there's no fitting response than worshiping God now. Amen? Amen.